Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we will be closing out chapter 1 today. And as you're turning there, just uh, want to reiterate what Nate said. We'd love for you to be here next week. In fact, um, I am commanding. I can't do that, but uh, I would love for you to be here next Sunday as uh, we welcome the Stepanians. Um, they are a dear, dear couple, not just to me and my family, but to, to many of you. Um, we worked together, John Paul and I did, um, at a church in this area, and then we spent three years at Grace Church of the Valley uh, together, uh, ministering alongside one another. And uh, Brother John Paul was um, called upon to go and uh, serve the, the brothers and sisters in Uganda, along with Shannon Hurley. And the Stepanians are the very first uh, missionary family to be sent out of Grace Church of the Valley. They uh, supported and had great relationships with lots of missionaries, but uh, these were the first homegrown ones that were sent uh, overseas. And so it is going to be a joy to have them here with us. John Paul is a mighty man of the word. And so those of you that know him um, know that when he comes up here and he preaches, uh, you will be blessed. So those of you that don't know him, come and enjoy not just that um, 10.30 hour, but as well the 9 o'clock hour. All right, well, speaking of missionaries, let me introduce you to Karen Watson. You want to know who Karen Watson is? Karen Watson, 38 years old. She was one of four missionaries who died in Iraq after their vehicle was ambushed. Karen, before she went on to the mission field, she actually wrote a letter, sealed the letter, and then handed it to one of her pastors with the instructions not to read unless she passed. We have a copy of that letter, and I want to read it to you. She wrote both to Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger. She said this, You should only be opening this letter in the event, in the event of death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. She said, I'm writing this as if I'm still working among the people group. I want to thank you all so much for your prayers and for your support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and my spiritual well-being. Please keep sending missionaries. Keep raising up fine young pastors in regards to any service. Keep it small, simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. If Jason Buss is available or his dad, have them sing a pretty song. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to the Father. And then she wrote, some of you might be familiar with this, the missionary heart, which says this, care more than some think is wise, risk more than some think is safe, Dream more than some think is practical, and expect more than some think is possible. She also listed a number of verses that um, she wanted them to read at the service. 
And then she said this, there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. Then she signed off, Aaron. There is one passage of scripture that she listed off that I want to read to you as we enter into Philippians. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says this in verse 15, and he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And for Sister Karen and so many like her, the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 meant everything. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the implications of those famous words from the Apostle Paul have been our meditation over the last several weeks. We've been kind of crawling through this last section of Philippians. And if you remember last week, we talked about the great privileges and responsibilities of our heavenly citizenship. Remember Paul, he said, this is my life, whether by life or death. And he longed not just to live faithfully for the glory of Christ, but he longed for other believers, for this Philippian church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we pick up this week where we left off, which is actually mid-sentence. But we remember the supreme command that Paul gave. He said there in verse 27, look there at the text with me, only worthily of the gospel of Christ, conduct yourselves as citizens so that whether I come to you or I remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. And if you think back to last week, we said, that we are to conduct ourselves as heavenly citizens. That means we stay together. We stay unified. We need to stand together and strive together. But the Philippians, as well as us, we're not going to stand. We're not going to strive. We're not going to be unified in our gospel efforts if we're terrified of opposition. And so what Paul does now in verses 28 through 30 is he wants to help them to not live in fear. He's saying, look, you might be like Karen. You might be ambushed. Your life might be threatened. Christian, there's no need to fear. Press on, stand firm, strive together. And look what he says here in verse 28 all along. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please, would you, by your gracious spirit, illumine this truth to our hearts so that we wouldn't just learn something new, but we would see you with new and fresh eyes, beholding your glory, and then acting appropriately with lives full of gratitude and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, here's our main idea. Our good God has ordained that our suffering for Christ's sake is one way that we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That might sound like a mouthful. Let me give it to you again. 
our good God has ordained that our suffering for Christ's sake is one way we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. As we tried to unpack what that means last week, what does it mean to live as heavenly citizens, to to live for another kingdom? We're reminded that while we're not there yet, while we live in a different place, a different locale, not everyone is on board with the kingdom that we love and live for. And because they're not on board and because they're opposed, we will face opposition. And so Paul says, look, I want you to be bold. I want you to be courageous. I want you to be unafraid. And he just doesn't say those things like do it, do it, do it. No, he gives reasons why. He fortifies our fearlessness, and he does so by providing four truths about Christian suffering. But before we jump into those, I want to try to just provide some preliminary comments that might be helpful as we enter into these verses. Here's the first thing. Paul is specifically talking about a certain type of suffering. So when we look at this text, he's not thinking of suffering just in general. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that people suffer and we have uh, truth, antidotes. We have Scriptures that we can memorize to help us in our time of suffering. The reality is that because we live in a fallen world, there is suffering. There's suffering of mind, suffering of body, suffer emotionally. Sometimes we suffer because we're just dumb and we sin and we make foolish decisions Sometimes our consciences suffer because we're not dealing with our sin. We're not confessing it. We're not exposing it. So we suffer internally. Sometimes we suffer from disease, sickness, disaster. Sometimes we suffer, and it's no fault of our own. Sometimes it comes from other people where they're abusive, where there's some form of injustice. But the suffering that Paul outlines here in this text is a suffering that is very particular. It is suffering that comes as a result of us living for the glory of Christ. It is opposition that comes our way in the form of persecution because you and I are trying to live for Jesus. It is for Christ's sake. That's extremely important because listen, if you are trying to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, The promise to you is you will suffer. It is a guarantee. If you're truly living like aliens and strangers, if you're living for a different kingdom here on earth, you will suffer. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. He said, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's all. Young, old, male, female, a believer for 50 years or a believer for five minutes, if you desire to live for Christ, you will suffer. Notice he doesn't say if you call yourself a Christian. He doesn't say if you attend church. But if you are living a godly life, you will experience suffering, which should make you pause right now and say, have I experienced any suffering? Have you? Has anyone persecuted you because you're living for Christ? We need to ask that question. Are you living in a manner worthy of the gospel? 
Because if you're not, you won't have any suffering. The world will get along with you, love you, enjoy you. There are some people who suffer, but it's not because they're suffering for Christ's sake. In all honesty, they're just suffering because they're jerks, because they're unloving, because they're ungracious, because they're abrasive. Now, if we're going to suffer, we need to make sure that we're suffering for Christ, not because we're cantankerous. I know some people who quite often complain about being persecuted, but it's not because they're living holy lives. Christian, you and I, we need to be different. If we have suffering, we should have a draw a straight line to the fact that we are living for Christ's sake. The Philippians, if you flip on over to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, you'll see that Paul commends them. And he says it's because the way that they're living that they're receiving opposition. Look there at 2.15. He says, you're blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And he said this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If your life, if your words are challenging the sin from the world, They're going to oppose you. You're going to be persecuted. In John chapter 3, we read this. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. It's not like you have to get in people's face and say anything, but just by observing the way that you live, by observing that you're not getting involved in that conversation, you're not gossiping, people aren't going to like you. Because that light is exposing their own sinfulness. So today's message, again, it's specific suffering that's in mind. It's suffering for Christ's sake. Now, with those preliminary marks out of the way, we want to ask this question. How can we as believers be strengthened and encouraged to continue in the faith, knowing that we will suffer for Christ's sake? So here are four truths. Four truths that will help prepare us to be bold to suffer for Christ. First of all, suffering is promised to the Christian. Suffering is promised to the Christian. It's not just promised, but it's also proof that you are a Christian. It's promised, it's the proof, but it's also, listen to this, it is the privilege of the Christian. And then finally, we'll look at the last point, which is it gives evidence of a partnership, a blessed partnership both with Christ and with other believers who have went before us. So let's look here at point one. Suffering is promised to the Christian. You have to remember, Paul is writing to a very hostile environment. He knows that by way of experience. You might not think that today in America we have a similar type of context like Rome, and maybe not. I should say maybe not yet. We're getting there. If you think about just the last 200 years, the universal church has been growing at a dramatic rate. We have that 1040 window that we're focused on. We're trying to get the gospel and the word of God to the unreached peoples. And the church has been growing. It has been expanding. And with that expanse, do you know what else is happening? Persecution. So in the last 1800 years, we haven't seen the amount of persecution 
and martyrdom that we've had in the last 200 years. If you go to places like China, North Korea, Africa, where Brother John Paul is ministering, Afghanistan, other parts of the Middle East, you will see that Christians are constantly being imprisoned, tortured, and even martyred. And you say, well, we're far from that, aren't we? Not up in Canada. Just above us, churches are being burned. I don't know if you've seen this. The church after church are being burned to the ground, pastors imprisoned, and I don't think that all of our American freedoms are going to protect us from persecution when it comes our direction. So if this is the case, if we have hostility, if we're living in a pluralistic society, if political correctness is upset because of our exclusive claims that come from the Scripture, what are we to do? How are we to respond when persecution comes our way? Well, you need to know it's promised. And it shouldn't catch you off guard. The New Testament consistently asserts that we will be opposed by people who are opposing Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter, writing to suffering Christians, says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing. And he says, as though something strange were happening to you. This is not a strange occurrence. It's to be expected. He says in verse 13, but to the degree you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he says this, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Do you see Peter's reasoning there? He says, look, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. This is a normal daily diet for the Christian. We all should be suffering to some degree or another. You say, well, that's what Peter says. Well, what about Jesus? He says this in Matthew chapter 10, and you will be hated. You say, why will we be hated? Because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. But turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John 15, and look at verse 18. I just want to show you from Jesus' own mouth the promise that we have about our persecution. He says there in John 15 and verse 18, these words, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, you say it. They will also persecute who? You. This is a guarantee, church. All these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And flip on over to John chapter 16 and look there at verse 33. Jesus says there, in the world you have tribulation. And look, no one knew that better than the Apostle Paul. Because as Paul even plants this church in Philippi, he and his missionary associates, they flee one town, they flee one city, and they avoid floggings and beatings only to get into another town and be stoned. Why? Because they're preaching the gospel. 
But listen, despite suffering for Christ's sake, Paul felt like it was worth it. And so he keeps at it. He keeps at it. He keeps advancing the gospel. He says, look, I know it's dangerous work. I know it's hard work, but it is the most glorious work. Proclaiming the name of Christ. And so over and over again, you have Paul encouraging the believers, encouraging the churches, imploring them to stand firm, to strive together. He says this in uh, Acts chapter 14, as he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, he's encouraging them to continue in the faith. He says, through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. So look, belonging to Christ means something. It means that you will suffer persecution. It's promised. But it's not just promised. Look, secondly, it is actually proof that you are a Christian. It's proof. Look at verse 28. Paul writes, In no way being alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. A life lived for the gospel will bring opposition, and that opposition brings two things. First, it reveals that those who oppose Christ, they have it coming to them. It reveals that it is a sign of, Paul says, destruction for them. Well, when Paul says, I don't want you to be alarmed by your opponents, that, that Greek verb there, it's very unique. It's only used here. But in other classical Greek writings, it has this idea of a horse that's very timid and scared. And you can scare it real quick, and it goes off into a stampede. One day I was uh, in PG, and if you're in PG, sometimes you see a lot of deer come out in people's front yards. And so, um, acting like a tourist here, I take out my cell phone, and uh, I want to take a picture of, like, all these little deer with little baby deer. And when I took it, my phone is connected to my my, uh, sound system. I don't have a sound system. It's a Prius, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) So when I took the picture, it went... And all of them just, and they started dodging cars. And I was like, oh my, I almost killed a bunch of deer. That is what Paul has in mind here. He says, don't be scared and run off in fear. Don't be alarmed. Stand firm. Paul doesn't want us to have a panic reaction when opposition comes. You say, well, where's this opposition going to come from? Who are these opponents? Well, he doesn't give the specifics here, but we know that it comes from the world. Obviously, Rome didn't like Christ. They crucified him. They didn't like Christians. They were setting them on fire. The Roman authorities, secular philosophies, worldly ideologies, all of it comes from the outside, but it's not just the outside because persecution actually comes from within as well. It's not genuine believers, although sometimes when we sin, it can be. But Paul gives warnings to various churches that there are some that creep into the church, and they oppose, and they persecute. You remember Paul gave instructions to the elders at Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, he says this to the elders. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says this, look, I know after my departure that savage wolves will come in not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul says, therefore, be on watch. 
remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with you, even with tears. Uh, flip on back to Philippians and look at chapter three. And here we might have a clue of who these opponents were. Look at Philippians chapter three and verse two. Paul says here, beware of the dogs, not the homies. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. All three of those refer to one and the same person. A dog during this time was an unclean animal. It wasn't domesticated and cute. You didn't give it a little, you know, cleaning at the, the doggy shop. No, the dogs ran wild in the street. They were spreaders of germs and disease. He says, this is what the people are who come into the church who try to pollute with their false doctrine. He says, beware of the false circumcision. Those were the Judaizers, the legalists, who were saying, look, you don't really have a relationship with God until you're circumcised. So they were trying to put this heavy burden back on the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to say they needed to be circumcised. Paul says, no, 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 that is not the true gospel. That is a false gospel. That is a damning gospel. If you live for Christ, listen, your opponents are going to come from everywhere. It's inescapable. It might be the government, which it is. It might be your family. It might be your neighbors, your coworkers. It might be classmates. It might be teammates. It might even be people sitting here in the church this morning. Don't think for one second that what Paul is talking about here is just imprisonment and martyrdom. Because listen, if you've Live for Christ. If you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel, it comes in all kinds of forms. You tell me, church, have you ever been avoided because of your faith? Ridiculed? Made fun of? Overlooked? Bypassed? Cursed? Have you been abused? Mistreated? I mean, on and on it goes. You don't have to necessarily be put in prison, killed, just slander, people talking about you. You really believe that? Don't you understand you're in college? Don't you understand that evolution is true? You're so foolish to believe this, this myth, this story, this person, Jesus, who died, and they ridicule you and think that you're dumb for believing, trusting in Christ. But Paul says, look, don't be timid. Don't be scared. Don't fall back on your heels. You have the message that saves. You have the truth. So proclaim the truth. Stand for the truth. Don't back away from the truth. Now we know that persecution will come. Paul says, don't be phased. And he reminds us why. Because this right here, when we stand firm, it's a sign of destruction for them. That word there, sign, it just means evidence. This is proof. When we stand together collectively, unafraid by the world and by opposition, it communicates to the world, you're in trouble. That's what it communicates. That's what Paul says. When I was in third grade, um, I had two big bullies um, say that they were going to beat me up after school. Well, they were, they were big, and I was small, fast. And so um, I let them know how big they were. 
So I said a bunch of mean things to them. And I said, you can't catch me. And I ran across the street to East LA College and they were chasing me and I ran up the stairs and they were chasing me and they ran out of gas. So I'm standing at the top of the stairs, making fun of them, calling them bad names. And then as we're getting closer to my house, one of them says something about a girl that I liked. And I've got like Karate Kid and all these movies in my head. So I'm like, no, you didn't. So I turn around and I'm face to face with these two guys. And I lean back and take a big swing and that's what I wanted it to be. It was not that. He didn't even flinch. No flinch. It was like I flicked him with the flowers, what it seemed like. <laughs> that to me was a sign that I was dead meat. I gave it my best shot and it didn't phase him. This is what Paul is saying. The world is going to take all these shots at you. The world is going to take its best shot at you. Well, what's that? You're going to torture us? You're going to kill us? If you kill me, you just send me to glory. You remember the brother that we talked about just a few weeks ago uh, where he was constantly threatened. And he said, look, you can't threaten me with heaven. When we stand firm, when we don't give in, that is a sign to them, their destruction. But turn with me to Second uh, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, just looked at this passage this morning. Second Thessalonians in chapter 1. Paul writes this in verse 4. He says, Therefore, we ourselves, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. Check this out. Verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed for our testimony to you was believed. Church, it will be a sign of destruction for them when we stand firm and trust that Christ will one day vindicate us. The world, false religions, Christ-haters, they're going to take their best shot at you. And guess what? It does nothing. Listen to the words of King Jesus, who said, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. can't do anything to us. Whatever harm that you are trying to inflict on the church, it really is just a help. 
It's going to proclaim the glory and the beauty and the worthiness of Christ when we stand firm. That's why Paul, his whole mentality is, this is why we have to stay together. This is why we have to be on the same page. I've had people say things like, why do you guys do the whole uh, doctrinal thing and the articles? And why do you make such a big deal of membership? Because I want to know who's on my team. Shirts and skins. Well, what team are you on? Are you with King Jesus? Or are you just calling yourself a Christian, not living it? We are bound together as a team. United we stand. Shields out. Swords out. We're both defending and on the offensive in a spiritual battle. So listen, just recently, you see it from Hollywood, from CNN, social media, cancel culture. When the pro-abortion and pro-LGBTQ groups call you intolerant, when they say that you're not really loving, when they accuse you of brain, brain, brainless, Paul says, don't even flinch. Don't even flinch. Remember that their opposition is merely a sign of their destruction. Listen, church, we don't gloat in that. This is key. We don't gloat in that. We don't gloat in anyone's destruction. Instead, we hope, we pray, we plead with them, we love them, we serve them, and we say, destruction is coming, but it doesn't have to come to you. You would just repent and believe. You bow the knee to King Jesus. When we're bold, when we're humble, when we're courageous, we are speaking volumes about the gospel. Paul knew that from experience. He should have known better. Remember when he was standing above Stephen? Stephen was stoned. Stephen didn't bow back down. He didn't recant. Instead, everyone's looking, why is this guy so bold? It looks like he has the face of an angel. Make no mistake, church, that when you are persecuted, not really you that's being persecuted, Jesus, he was here, they would persecute him. He was here, they'd go after him. Because he's not here, they go after you, me. Jesus, he told Paul, and he was breathing out threats. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then I love what he says later on. We get this in Acts. Paul is giving his testimony. He says, don't you know that it is hard for you to kick against the goads? But for so long, I had no idea what that meant. So you understand some of that culture. Kicking against the goads. You, the modern translation is this. You keep trying to pick a fight with me. But listen, bud, you're not going to win. That's what Jesus told Paul. You are going to hurt yourself trying to attack me. Every time they persecute us, it is a sign of destruction for them. But it's not just a sign of destruction for them. It is a proof that you're a Christian. Look there at the text. It is a proof of your salvation. Our suffering for Christ's sake means that you are actually living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And one of the most compelling proofs that you are a believer is if you persevere through suffering. Because look, fake Christians don't stand firm. Fake Christians hightail it and leave. Because when it gets tough, well, I don't want to deal with that. But 2 Timothy 2.12, we read this. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Love that. But it also says, pay close attention, if we deny him, he 
will also deny us. No one, no one is going to be willing to suffer for Christ. They don't think he's worth it. But as the watching world sees us standing firm, one mind, striving together to face the gospel, our testimony demonstrates that he is supremely valuable. So, both the sign of their destruction, our salvation, Paul says it comes from God, but it's not just the sign that comes from God. Notice verse 29, it begins with, for to you. The word for that provides the reason why we have no need to face opposition, no fear in facing opposition. So you say, well, why why can't we stand firm? Why should there be no fear? The answer is right there in verse 29. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And what Paul is saying is, look, there's something that's coming from God, but it's not just something that comes from God. It's something that comes from God that's a good gift. That is what this text is saying. And this leads us to point three. Suffering is the privilege of the Christian. The word there is granted, and it's a divine passive. I love this. When you encounter a divine passive, it means that God is the one who sends the gift. And the gift here, look what it says, is on behalf of Christ. There are several words for that word give in the New Testament, but there's one word that sticks out among all of them, and it's the word charizomai. Charizomai. Um, we have a girl here named Charis, uh, Grace. That is the word that we see in the text. Charizomai means to give graciously or to bestow on one with favor or with kindness. And you say, well, Dom, what's the gift? There's actually two of them tied right here in this verse. Take a look. The first one is the gift of faith. It has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. The Bible commands us to believe, but both you and I understand, because we believe the doctrines of grace, that your belief in Christ is actually a gift. It's not something that's owing to you. You don't congratulate yourself for believing. The reason why you believe is because it is a gift. Paul draws his reader's attention to this gracious gift over and over throughout Scripture. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted, there's the word, he has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. When Jesus went around healing people of their sickness and blindness, the scriptures say it was granted to them. It was a gift, a gracious gift to them. It's also used of Jesus when he talks about graciously forgiving those who couldn't repay their debts. But there's a gift that far exceeds all of those gifts, and it is the gift of salvation. Charizomai shines the brightest when it's used to talk about your salvation and my salvation. So some of you have this memorized. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, what? Graciously give us all things. Charizomai. One of the greatest gifts that God has given you and me is his spirit. 
In 1 Corinthians 2.12, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you as a gracious gift. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a gracious gift. Salvation has been given to you as a gracious gift. But Scripture, listen to this, church. If you've tuned out, tune back in. The Scriptures tell us that in the same way that God has given us the gift of salvation, He has given us the gift of suffering. It's in the text. Rarely will you hear someone ask this in a prayer request. Who's praying for that? The ladies you guys met on, you girls met on Wednesday, took prayer requests. I asked Jess, there's, there's no prayer request for suffering. You won't hear people envious of others who are suffering. No one's anxiously awaiting for suffering to come. But he says here, it has been granted, graciously given, for Christ's sake also to suffer for his sake. We love the fact that salvation is a gift. But Paul is trying to reorient our thinking to remind you that when you suffer, it is a gracious gift given to you by an omnipotent, sovereign, benevolent, gracious God. You say, well, why does he do that? Why does he send this gift of suffering? Because he personally wants to let the world know that you are prized, that you are one of his, that you're his child. So I still don't understand. Why is it that we have such a hard time understanding that suffering is a grace gift from God? We don't treat it like a gift. We treat it like an elephant gift. You know, an elephant gift? get it, you don't like it, so you want to trade it for something else or you want to give it away real quickly. That's how we treat suffering. And even though we hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here and we abominate that thing, practically speaking, I think we want to be in that realm. We want health, wealth, and prosperity. When suffering comes, we want to avoid it completely. When Jesus calls Saul to himself, he tells Ananias, go and tell him something. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, Listen to this, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Look, Jesus isn't punishing Paul. He's not being vindictive or mean. It's not like God was sleeping somehow and just suffering showed up at Paul's door. No, suffering always comes through the filter of God's faithfulness. He allows suffering because in that suffering, he wants to conform you to the image of his son. In his book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges says this, every adversity that comes across our path, whether large or small, is intended to help us grow in some way. If we are not beneficial, if it were not beneficial, God would not allow it or send it. God does not delight in our sufferings He brings only that which is necessary, but he does not shrink from that which will help us grow. So do you understand that Paul is saying, God sends suffering, and I don't have to be apologetic about it. He does it for his good purpose. 
you say, well, didn't Jesus do all the suffering for me? I don't get it. If he's already suffered on the cross, why do I have to keep suffering? Didn't he already pay all the suffering? The answer to that is obviously no. We don't just get to enjoy our salvation and skip our way to heaven with no opposition. God loves his children too much to allow us to cruise through life and not be conformed to the image of Christ. And remember, Jesus is the suffering servant. If you want to know Christ better, you cannot know Christ better apart from suffering. Suffering, it strengthens our faith. It produces endurance and character. It sanctifies us. It matures us. It makes us more like Jesus. It shifts our eyes off of the temporal and earthly comforts. Suffering reminds us that, wait a second, this is not my home. Suffering sifts out superficial believers. It sweetens our intimacy and fellowship with Jesus. Suffering serves as an example for others who are following in our footsteps. Parents, when your kids see you suffering well for the cause of Christ, you know what they say? Jesus is worth it. Suffering is promised to believers. It's the proof that you're saved. It's proof that there will be judgment for the non-believer. Suffering is a privilege. Lastly, suffering is partnership with Christ and with other Christians. Paul pens these next words as a fellow sufferer. Look what he says in verse 30. Having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. See, when we suffer for Christ's sake, you and I, we join the great company of all the saints who have went before us and suffered for the cause of Christ. And listen to what Jesus says. It's just a good reminder for you. He says, blessed, blessed, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It doesn't sound like meanness, vindictiveness, hatred, making you pay for your sins. No, he says you are blessed if you suffer for the sake of righteousness. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, listen to this, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know if you've heard that suffering is a blessing or that it should be embraced. Maybe you're like, I don't know that I really want to sign up for all that. This whole idea of going to heaven and being forgiven, I like that part. But this suffering stuff, I don't know about that. Well, Jesus will have a word for you, and it's this. Remember the word that I said to you, slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John Wesley, he was riding on a horse, and then it dawned on him that it had been a while since he'd been persecuted. So he gets off of his horse, he gets on his knees, thinking to himself, maybe I've sinned, maybe I've done something to earn the disfavor of God. And just as he's praying, a man from the other side of the road notices this pesky preacher picks up a rock and throws it at him and misses his head. John Wesley gets up and thanks the Lord that everything is all right. 
You might think that sounds crazy, but there is an assurance and a confirmation when people oppose you and you are living for Christ. And remember the apostles. After they were flogged by the religious leaders and they were ordered not to speak in Jesus' name, remember what they did. They went away rejoicing they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Turn, turn over to Philippians chapter 3. I want to show you one more passage of Scripture. Paul, as he's describing his greatest ambition, his, his, his heart's desire, his, his love for the Lord, this intimate relationship and knowledge with the Savior, he says all that, but he also says something pretty significant. Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Listen to what he says and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. This was so true of Paul. He said, I bear the marks of Christ on my body. To prove it, he just takes off his shirt and shows you all of the scars. Paul suffered for Christ's sake, arrested, beaten, stoned, whipped, That's a worthy citizen. I want to remind you that your sanctification, ultimately your glorification depends on this. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, it's as simple as this. You're a sinner. You deserved hell. Jesus left heaven. He came here and he suffered to purchase you. He bled. He died. He hung on a cross in complete and utter agony to save you. So as we look at Jesus and we look at the suffering that he endured, And he said, if you want to follow after me, this is your lot in life. You will receive insults, persecution. But do not fear. Because when you stand firm together as a church, and you stay united, and you live like I am worth it, you are communicating a gospel message that is loud and clear. Oswald Chambers said this, to choose... To suffer means that there's actually something wrong with you. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. See the distinction there? No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Don't leave here how to get beat up by the first person you see. It might be God's will for you to suffer. Or you might be shaken in fear, but you know you should share something. And when you do, someone says, 
I've never heard this before. I need Jesus. How do I have a relationship with him? Listen, if we're always cowering in fear because we're anticipating some persecution, we will never deliver the gospel. Let me ask you something. Knowing that Christ suffered for you, what does that do for you? Does that say, I should be willing to lay down my life for him? I should be willing to take up my cross for him? That's the Apostle Paul's life. And all those saints in Hebrews 11, that is their life. And for Karen, who laid down her life in Iraq, that was her life. And for us, may it be true of us that we are living truly in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not looking for suffering, but willing to suffer if that is God's will or our faithfulness as we proclaim and advance the gospel to a dying lost world. Oh Lord, we recognize that opposition will come. And Paul's clear instruction from this passage is to not be afraid, to not fear, but to continue to speak with boldness and courage. Lord, we certainly enjoy our freedoms here in America. I love my country. I'm thankful for it. But I'm not first an American. I'm a child of the King, and so are the saints here. Lord, we will be faced with opposition when we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus and we live as devoted citizens of the kingdom. So, Lord, according to your word, we are to expect opposition, expect to be ostracized, expect to be slandered and mistreated. But, Father, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve. Remind us that we're not being punished when trial comes, when opposition comes, but that this suffering is a divine blessing. It is a gift from your own hand. We thank you, Father, for this privilege. We thank you for the partnership. We so desperately long to, along with Paul, say for me, live as Christ and to die as gain. Amen.